The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is a true honor to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Kramer. He is a microbiologist by training. He has his Ph.D. from Mississippi State, and he has served for over 32 years with the USDA's Agricultural Research Service Cropping Systems and Water Quality Unit. He recently retired from that position, and he continues on as an adjunct professor of soil microbiology at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Dr. Kramer, welcome. Oh, thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I've been so intrigued with your research on soil biology, and it's something that those of us who work in public health, I think, really need to be paying more attention to, because as I get older, I think more ecologically, and I see how everything is connected. But I'm curious, how did you specifically get interested in soil microbiology? Well, it was uh, really by chance when I entered the, the University of Missouri as a freshman many years ago. I had originally wanted to do field crops uh, research because I, I was uh, raised on a farm and I had a, a very good connection with plants and soils. And so um, I went to the first day of classes, went to the department, and they assigned me uh, an individual by the name of Dr. Uh, George Wagner, who was a soil microbiologist. This is when soils was in the Department of Agronomy. And it was just by chance he was assigned to me as my advisor. He directed me into the uh, soils area, and I kept my emphasis in soils, including the soil microbiology. And he really guided me through through my undergraduate study. And uh, when I was drafted into the military, he told me that he would have an assistantship for me when I served my tour of duty, which obviously was in the soil microbiology area, and that's uh, how it started. Well, you have been a real leader in this area of soil microbiology, specifically, or at least since 1997, looking at or investigating the environmental and ecological impacts of glyphosate, better known as Roundup, and glyphosate-resistant cropping systems. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how you got started looking at that particular compound and what you found. Well, that goes into uh, quite a bit of history, which I'll try to abbreviate here. Part of my duties as when I was employed by the USDA ARS was to uh, examine the relationships of soil microorganisms and weeds. When I came in, a lot of the herbicides that we had were not very effective in weed control, and we were looking at why this was happening and also looking at alternative methods. And one of these methods was trying to identify some of these microorganisms that could be potential biological control agents. In other words, a, sort of a natural control, either supplementing uh, synthetic herbicides or completely replacing them. And 
this was uh, you know quite interesting, and we we looked at that for quite a while. It was a very difficult project because uh, of all the the weeds that we had in the field at the time. It's very difficult to find one organism to do this, and we also. Connected with that, we were looking at microbiology of pesticide degradation in soil, why some were not working because the uh, microbes quickly decompose these compounds before they could affect their target to pest. And then even before the Roundup Ready or transgenic crops came out that were herbicide resistant, we knew that glyphosate could set up a plant to become very infected by opportunistic pathogens in the soil. This actually is, is one of those, what we might call a secondary mechanism as to how this chemical kills plants. You know, it has, it has a primary mechanism, which is to block the synthesis of some amino acids that are required by the plants to grow, and then they die. But a secondary mode was that they set up the plant to be infected by the myriad of organisms in the soil through the roots and basically cause a huge infection. So knowing that, we thought when the Roundup Ready crops came out that perhaps we could isolate some of these fungi that were on the roots that were stimulated by uh, Roundup application and actually use those as a biological control agent against either other weeds or actually against another pest of soybeans, for example, the soybean cyst nematode. So we, we were looking at that from a completely different viewpoint than what we ended up doing. We were not very successful in identifying biological control agents, but then we noticed that every year from 96 on, the, the soybean plants that were Roundup ready are glyphosate resistant, were always heavily infected by certain uh, fungi in the root systems. And we kept looking at that annually for many years, and the same thing happened every year, regardless of what variety was being released at the time. And that just sent a signal to me that, you know, there's something going on in the root zone with the uh, glyphosate resistant plant and the application of glyphosate that could set these plants up to be diseased and have a real problem. Now, obviously, we, we never did connect this with a widespread disease outbreak, but as I've always mentioned in the papers, the potential is there. Mm-hmm. And that's basically how we got that started. We've reported that, and we've moved on from there and looked at various other details with that infection since then. Well, you know, the public is told that we need these transgenic crops to feed the world, that they are actually responsible for the use of less herbicides, although I have some data from Dr. Chuck Bembrook, who is now at Washington State University, who actually looked at USDA data saying, no, actually we're using in the order of 500 million more pounds of herbicides since these crops were introduced. And we have weed resistance developing, so that's contributing to greater herbicide use. And I also, we're also told that this is an absolutely safe herbicide compared to some of the other herbicides that were used. So how do we make sense of this, what I've come to call this he said, she said science, where we have some 
valid concerns and published concerns against um, mostly manufacturer responses. That is basically, this is fine, it's safe, don't worry. Well, those are generalizations that uh, were used originally when glyphosate was released because at that time it was used as a clean up the field of weeds and then go in later and plant. Mm -hmm. And obviously there was no concern with that, but we have learned since then that the fact that glyphosate is supposed to be uh, immobilized or defused, so to speak, after it's supplied to the plants and reaches the soil is not necessarily true. There's a lot of factors that affect that. I mean, you could go into a lot of soil factors, uh, plant factors, and, and that kind of thing that just shows that you can't rely on those assumptions. So in every field, there, there's something different going on, and glyphosate does not degrade very fast. In fact, oftentimes we don't have the, the right set of organisms in the soil to even begin to, to break it down uh, very far at all. So, you know, that's the problem there. That, that That is a piece of information that has not been gotten into into any depth at all uh, as far as the public's concerned. Mm-hmm. Why do we need to use uh, transgenic crops or herbicide-resistant crops? I think it's a situation where the industry is becoming frustrated with the herbicides that we had at, at the time before this was released because right. there was resistance being built up against other classes of herbicides, and the fact that it's very expensive to develop synthetic herbicides. Even one product will cost hundreds of millions of dollars to release, and I think the the, uh, the industry was not willing to do that anymore, and the, the molecular selection for the resistance was much easier because as we've evolved, uh, those techniques have become a lot easier and less expensive to do. Now, whether this is needed to feed the world, I think that's kind of a facade. There was a promise of uh, high and economic yields. That's never really been proven. I can go to the variety of reports that the university puts out and and other universities in other states release uh, their variety trials on yields. You can find conventional varieties before transgenic crops that yield just as well and sometimes even higher than these transgenic crops. So I think this is a situation we have to deal with because now it's so widespread that we have a generation of farmers that this is the easiest way to go and perhaps the only thing they know how to do because many of our uh, other agencies such as uh, Extension or chemical dealers they are more attuned to the use of transgenic crops and, and one herbicide than to go back and try to come up with a real management plan of how to deal with development herbicide-resistant weeds and really the, the, whole, the whole expense of putting in a, a herbicide-resistant crop. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking to several farmers actually over the years as I've been doing this program, and I interviewed a seed dealer from South Dakota. He was one of my first interviewees, and He said, you know, it's becoming more difficult to get the non-GMO seeds. And then some of my friends locally who grow, both in Iowa and Missouri, say, you know, it's becoming almost impossible to get the non-GMO seed. So that concerns me a great deal. 
being that you came from a farm. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, you know, I, I agree to a certain extent with that, and, and especially when you realize that those who own the major seed companies now are also those who sell the, the chemical. And that's one reason I believe that these uh, non-GMO seeds are difficult to get because they're not being released to a lot of outlets that will handle these seeds. So there is a trend, though, for non-GMO crops. In fact, with this whole herbicide-resistant weed problem, the fact that more herbicides are going to have to be used, more different ones other than, than Roundup, I think there's a movement on for non-GMO seeds crops to be grown. I know of some instances where premiums may be paid for those grains once they're harvested. So I think there's going to be more of that available. You just have to search for certain independent companies that have these non-GMO seeds. I I know they're out there. I guess the concern is, is would there be enough seed for for the demand. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Robert Kramer, who recently retired from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Agricultural Research Service. He served as a microbiologist there for over 30 years. He is an adjunct professor in the Division of Plant Sciences at the University of Missouri, and we are talking about his research on Roundup-ready crops, glyphosate, the herbicide used on those crops, and the effect on soil microorganisms. I am curious to know, getting back to the soil piece of this story, because I love the idea of looking at soil microorganisms and human microorganisms and seeing similarities in those. And I wonder if we are harming the soil, if we are creating an imbalance of microorganisms in a negative way, how that might also affect our own gut organisms and our own public health. And I wonder, you know, getting down to the soil level, in areas where glyphosate has been used repeatedly over the years now, are you seeing not only changes with the microorganisms, but also with regard to other beneficial organisms, say, such as earthworms? Uh, Well, it's interesting you, you bring that up, Melinda. We see some changes it's interesting that um, a lot of the uh, many of the, the components in the in the microbial community in the soil that we see change during the growing season, such as let's say certain groups of bacteria uh, may shift towards one dominant group as opposed to another, and, and most of the time these are shifting towards those that are not very that are more detrimental towards plant growth and the same way with the fungi, we see that during the season. Then sometimes when we go back into that field where, where it's not under a GMO production, it, the, the microbes are resilient enough that they rebound, and mm-hmm. uh, you don't see quite the, the, the vast differences that we saw previously. And I, th- I think it um, has to do with the, the fertility status of the soil, the organic matter. I, I would I would say that on soils that are that are not very well managed, that these shifts may prolong a bit longer, and that is a concern because many of, some of the organisms that are that are stimulated by by uh, glyphosate 
can actually uh, immobilize nutrients and make them unavailable to plants. I think manganese is a good one. That it will, we have certain microorganisms that will make it into a, a chemical form that is very insoluble and therefore it can't be taken up. But one of my uh, researcher uh, friends, colleagues, has also noted that once glyphosate is then returned to the field, that there is a memory or a, there is an adaptation in the community that they are stimulated immediately and this spikes up again for the detrimental type microbes. And then recently I just read a report where there is uh, glyphosate has been detected in, in earthworms, for example, and that it may interfere with some of the uh, physiology of that earthworm. It, but, you know, there, there hasn't been a detailed enough study to understand what really is going on with it, but it is of a concern that it is being found in earthworm tissue. And then uh, also the Canadians have done a lot of work on tracking the uh, various engineered genes that can be released through the roots of these plants into the soil through in the area that what we're seeing there is is that this DNA material is actually being released into the soil food web now whether it is being has is having a detrimental effect or not we don't know but we do know that it can be transferred among organisms and possibly could be replicated, you know, by a process we call horizontal gene transfer. Mm -hmm. So, and this is not just restricted to the glyphosate-resistant gene. It's also been shown to be uh, happening for the, the BT gene, the, the, the gene that uh, is used to give uh, insecticide resistance in, in many crops, primarily corn, against some of these, these insect pests. So there's a lot going on in, in that ecology. How extensive it's going to be in, in affecting the makeup of the microbial community in the long run, you know, we, we still don't know a lot about it, but certainly I think it should be something that we, we need to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. Being that you're at a land-grant university and you've been there for decades, clearly we need more research. Is there a problem or a concern about getting research dollars to look at some of these issues? Have you found it easy to explore whatever research question you might have? Or who is deciding what the research questions are? Well, you know, most of the time um, at a university situation, the uh, researcher is, is free to choose what projects they wish to pursue. Now, most of the time, because most of the agricultural experiment stations are not as well-funded as they were, say, 20 to 30 years ago, mm -hmm. this means that uh, one has to write uh, proposals and hope to get grant funding from some agency or some public or, or private funding source. And that makes it very difficult to, uh, to really choose a particular project. And that is... That is a problem with looking at consequences of transient crops and the use of glyphosate because there's not a whole lot of funding out there from the big agencies that, that want to look into that. What I've been able to do in the past was to obtain funding from some small companies that, that were interested in the work, but it was primarily 
from the standpoint of, well, if, if we have these detrimental effects from the use of, of glyphosate and there's a, there, there is, you know, over 90% of the acres in the country now is devoted to transgenic crops, what can we do to offset the effects that you have found that are detrimental? And so they would, they would have a product and we would test that. And that would at least help continue that research, although, you know, you had to include some extra treatments to satisfy the objectives of that particular proposal. So, so that's, you know, it's, it's a kind of a indirect way to continue that kind of work, but that's, that's about the way that, that, uh, if one wanted to do it and be funded, to get that work done. Mm-hmm. Now, I noticed in 2009, you and your colleagues published an article in the European Journal of Agronomy, and the title was Glyphosate Interactions with Physiology, Nutrition, and Diseases of Plants, Threat to Agricultural Sustainability, with a question mark. And I wondered why you chose the European Journal of Agronomy, and do you find publishing in other journals, say, from the United States, are are those easy to publish in, or why did you choose this particular journal? Yes, that's a good question, and uh, and I, I was the um, the managing editor for that particular issue, and and that you know this was a this was a synopsis of two different symposia that we held in Brazil, at, where we had uh, gathered this uh, international panel of of distinguished scientists to address these issues. And at the time, you know, I, I brought it up. Let's, you know, we we should publish this because there's a lot of important information that is only going to be retained here in Brazil, and that's not going to be very widespread. Now, I know it it, it seemed, you know, it appears that uh, no American journals wanted to publish it, but uh, we did contact several. You know, my preference would have been agronomy journal, which is kind of the standard for that field, but they had already published several symposia, and, and what I, the message I received from them, that, that, that they were not prepared to publish the symposium section at that time. And so, you know, I, just, I simply contacted many outlets, and uh, eventually we settled on the European Journal of Agronomy because they were receptive, they were willing to work with us, and they were they were willing to be involved in the symposium, the the uh, European Society of Agronomy. So um, we went with that, and it and it's it's not because it was that difficult to get published. It was, you know, it, it was it was timely information. We needed at least a uh, premier journal to publish it, and that's why we settled on it. And and as it turns out, that particular journal has a higher what we call an impact factor. Than most of the uh, agronomy journals in in the in the U.S., so I, I think it worked out uh, very well in, in uh, for us. We we have two papers from that section that are are some of the most highly cited uh, papers uh, that that is on their website. So I you know it makes us feel that we made a good selection. Yes, and I'll provide a link to that because I think that if people want to learn more about the research and, as, as you say, you know, is this a threat to agricultural sustainability, I think it's something that we need to be considering because, as you say, 90% or more of the acreage in the United States is using this technology and these chemicals. And that leads us, of course, to the next question, what's coming down the pike, and that is the 2,4-D resistant crops. 
And as far as I understand, the 2,4-D resistant crops will also be resistant to glyphosate. There'll be a tank mixing of glyphosate and 2,4-D. And we can expect more of this spraying in our rural communities. What's this going to do to the soil, Dr. Kramer? You know, I can only um, uh, suggest that that it will probably cause an additive effect on impacts on the soil microbial community and the soil ecology. There has been quite a bit of work completed with 2,4-D because, as you know, that this is the original herbicide that, that was an outcome of from World War II after the chemical industry was established to produce agricultural chemicals. So there's been a lot of work uh, with 2,4-D, very little on the actual uh, interaction with plants and microorganisms, which is somewhat peculiar, I think. Most of the work has been done with the degradation cycle of 2,4-D, and as a matter of fact, it takes uh, many species of bacteria and fungi to break this chemical down, and that's pretty typical with any chemical that's in the soil. But there there have been some studies that, that showed that very similar to glyphosate, this chemical will stimulate certain microorganisms uh, not only on the roots, but within the plant, which we would call endophytes. And if if the, these are uh, predominant, um, who knows what their activity will be? You know, will they? Uh, because 2,4-D is a, is a, a plant growth regulator type compound, like a, like a hormone. There's a possibility that uh, we could have uh, a lot of stimulation of that kind of thing to cause plant aberrations leading to possibly uh, to uh, plant death. I would suspect that this may even happen with the plant that this combination herbicide was developed to protect. So uh, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens from biologically. I think there's, there's a real possibility that we'll get more resistant weeds. We already know that in Nebraska, there are one or two weed species that are already resistant to 2,4-D or 2,4-D type of similar herbicides. So there's already a clue that it's out there. And, and this, is, this is a very poor strategy to go ahead and stack more herbicide-resistant genes into the plant because I, I think we're, we're going to have more problems down the road. Mm-hmm. Well, I knew that our time would fly, and we'll just have to provide our listeners with a link to your website at the University of Missouri where you have a listing of your recent publications. Do you want to leave our listeners with a charge or any last message? Well, yes. Um, the, the work that we've done over the years is, is primarily to, to be used to, to inform um, producers as to what's going on in the soil and in their in their crops when we're using these chemicals, also the transgenic crops. But I think now we need to expand that further to the to the public at large. You know, it, it's 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 information is power. You know, we have this set of information. Balance it with the other information that that you have from the commodity groups, the industry people, and really come to your own conclusions about what is happening here in the agricultural environment. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for your years of research and for sharing your time with me today. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to close by reminding our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Kramer, for being my guest. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs>